This is part two of a multi-part series on the Gulag. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. So where we left off last episode was how Marx said the philosopher has only interpreted the world in various ways, however the point is to change it. That's tough. Keep in mind, Marx is... He's not practical in the sense that he's getting out, getting out, going out there and doing it. He's more of a theorist. But Lenin, on the other hand, Vladimir Lenin, is the practical theorist. And he takes what Marx says very seriously. And he's going to go out and he's going to go about making change. He's going to turn it into a reality. So remember, Marx had the idea about a revolution at the end of the 19th century. And it did not occur. So Lenin has to come up with this theory of his own to set history back on its sort of natural, its its proper course. If you play video games, you'll know of the idea of speedrunning a video game. It's exactly what sort of Lenin wanted to do. He wanted to speedrun the revolution because, like Marx said, that there would be a revolution at the end of the 19th century. It never happened. And so Lenin comes up with Marxism-Leninism as a way to fix almost what Marx got wrong, to set history back on its proper tracks. And this would be a way of fulfilling the unfulfilled prophecy, right, of the, the total collapse of, uh, of capitalism and the rise of communism. But just because capitalism didn't totally collapse in on itself doesn't mean that there weren't, you know, socialists and, and the communist parties. You know, they were still on the rise during this time. And people, a lot of people uh, subscribe to the ideology. So Lenin thinks, uh, through these practical issues of making the theoretical socialism into a functioning reality, he thinks through this and he founds the Revolutionary Communist Party. Keep in mind that there was not just communists, there was not socialists, there were different sects. Uh, of of sort of like there are different many different uh, sects of or denominations of Christianity or or something like that. They all they're all similar, maybe to someone who doesn't understand, uh, you know the, the the nuances or really the fine details. But Lenin can be summed up uh, by one of his quotes where he says, "Quote: We want to achieve a new and better order of society. In this new and better society, there must be neither rich nor poor. All will have to work." Not a handful of rich people, but all the people working must enjoy the fruits of their common labor. Machines and other improvements must serve to ease the work of all, and not to enable a few to grow rich at the expense of tens of millions of people. This better and new society is called socialist society. The teachings about this society are called, are called socialism, end quote. Right, so that sounds pretty familiar. Uh, but in order to achieve his socialist society, he needs to set up, or he needs to speed things in a practical way. Uh, in order to do this, he needs to bridge the gap between class instinct and class consciousness. And in order to bridge that gap, he says, well, they need a leader. They need someone to, to speed things up here and push them in the right direction. And he says, well, you know, I'm the guy to do it. I can do it. Uh, and class consciousness is is the self-awareness of a group. Here it's the proletariat that comes usually from shared grievances around the capitalistic system or, or the upper rich class. And he believed that the proletariat didn't have that class conscious, consciousness yet, at least not fully solidified. But it did have the instincts towards it, the unconscious emotional gravitation towards the con class consciousness but he says that you know left to your own devices 
you're left to your own instinctual devices, you know, you may go astray. So Lennon argued that he was the guide to direct these instincts in the proper direction so that true class consciousness could be reached. And not everyone was going to budge, of course. Some people prided themselves on their ability to think for themselves. And to know, to Lennon, this was a big no-no because he was trying to shape shape uh, the human nature, the class consciousness here of an entire group of people. And after Lenin takes power in the revolution of 1917, he really starts cracking down on any sort of ideological dissent, whether that it be even if you're just a slightly different kind of socialist or communist, you are still a target if you didn't line up with his belief. Uh, Eigel Halfin writes in Between Instinct and Mind, quote, But communist instincts never sufficed. A measure of confidence in one's proletarian instinct could be quite laudable. But the determination shown by Bogotarov during the discussion with Lev Trotsky to prove he had an original mind was considered immaturity and even childishness. Salkovsky, another worker, was almost expelled from the university because he lacked sufficient proletarian sensitivity. The student managed to persuade the majority that he could develop himself and refine his instincts with the help of his mind. Gorohov, another student at Leningrad University, put it as this. What is important is not what we are, but what we are likely to become in the future. One has to be given time to forge a clear communist worldview. It is not for nothing that the part-stressed forging of the workers' selves, all facets of the workers' personality, had to be synchronized if he was going to become a loyal soldier for the revolution. End quote. So there's no room here for any sort of individual thinking. As the quote said, all aspects, all facets of a worker's personality had to be synchronized for the revolution. It required all, everyone to be in on it. There couldn't be dissent. So Lenin needs to guide these instincts in the proper direction for him so that every worker and every citizen could be under the same mindset. But as was, as was mentioned, it's not easy, specifically with millions of people who are coming from backgrounds of Western education or, or they're just used to a totally different worldview and they won't so easily f give up their farms that have been in their generation for, for, you know, for forever almost. And Lenin doesn't really have a lot of popular support, especially because he's very factionalist, not super well prepared. And so he has to purge these kinds of people who are so against him and his objective adjustment of history. And he goes on to declare a new kind of enemy to the Soviet state, a class enemy, which is very vague and I think uh, pur purposefully vague in a way. You know, what technically counts as a class enemy and Applebaum in Gulag answers that question by saying, quote, From the very earliest days of the new Soviet state, in other words, people were to be sentenced not for what they had done, but for who they were. Unfortunately, nobody ever provided a clear description of what exactly a class enemy was supposed to look like. As a result, arrests of all sorts increased dramatically in the wake of the Bolshevik coup. From November 1917, a revolutionary tribunal composed of random supporters of the revolution began convicting randoms of enemies of the revolution. Prison sentences, forced labor terms, and even capital punishment were arbitrarily metered out to bankers, to merchants' wives, to speculators, meaning anyone engaged in an independent economic activity, to former czarist-era prison warders, and to anyone else who seemed suspicious.
end quote. And most of the time, if you were a class enemy, if you fell under the vague category, you were separated into two groups. You were uh, either a political prisoner, which meant you were at the very lowest low of society. And then slightly above that, but still very low, you could also be put into the group of the criminal prisoner. And depending on which you were, your experiences would be vastly different. So it was very important uh, which category you were put into. You know, as, as that would be how the society would sort of see you in a way, especially in the, the prison culture that you were going to be sent to. And especially during Joseph Stalin's reign. So Lenin, you know, he's rounding up all these class enemies who are politically against him and his vision. And, you know, what do you do with them now? Well, you look around your country and you find these old prisoner of war camps and other prisons that were left over from the, czar, the czar's uh, previous regime. There's nothing unusual about sending these dissidents there because the czar did it uh, previously. Some Western places had a previous uh, history of doing it. And Lenin says, okay, this is a good start got to put them somewhere. They're against us. But there's one problem. These prisoners, these prisons are all out of whack. They're cold. They're filthy. They're carrying diseases. And there's just not enough food. And on top of that, there aren't enough prisons for all the people that you need to throw in jail. Lenin starts putting his prisoners in anything he could, from basements to attics to empty palaces to old churches. If there's old, If there was space, then Lenin would put you there. As Applebaum says, it wasn't bad for everyone, though. Some diplomatic political prisoners who are arrested had pretty good uh, uh, conditions. She says, quote, Robert Bruce Lockhart, a British diplomat accused of spying, accurately as it happened, as imprisoned in 1918 in a room in the Kremlin, he occupied himself playing cards and reading Thucydides and Carlyle. From time to time, a former imperial servant brought him hot tea and newspapers, end quote. And on top of this, Lenin had a reputation to uphold, especially for his revolution. Because throughout the Soviet Union's history, you'll often see the communist regime being very conscious of Western opinion. Not because of what they think they're doing is necessarily wrong, but because what they're doing is sort of this great experiment. Anything bad that could come from communism could be used against the, the whole movement everywhere in the West, especially maybe in British newspapers or, or whatever. So you, know, you look at all those who people have died, and you know, the British could say, oh, that's what happens when you mess with socialism. And, and you'll see the Soviet government, like I said, throughout the history going to great lengths to secretly transport a lot of these prisoners around the territory. And often maybe denying or saying, you know, this is for something else. But uh, because of these p- poor prison systems where uh, really it just became this place where anybody could walk in and out. It was sort of like an Andy Griffith show. You kind of just had a key available. At least I think that's how it was in the show. It's been a while since I've seen it. So the Lenin and the Communist Party has to reorganize and put their real enemies into a system where they could be re-educated, but also be put to work. And Lenin turns to the secret police, or quote the sword and shield of the Communist Party, for help. And Lenin used them. I think one for one reason because. They had no official allegiance to the Soviet government. They weren't really beheld to its laws. They could sort of act outside of it. So 
one place that's very important to the Gulag's history, and what a lot of historians usually agree is the first official Gulag camp, where it all started, what Alexander Shoshinitsyn called the Gulag in the Gulag archipelago. He called it the mother of the Gulag, and that camp was the Solovitsky uh, camp system. And this camp system was set up on some islands in the White Sea. If you can picture a map in your head, it's sort of up there to the north, way, way north of St. Petersburg, sort of by Finland, along the, the White Sea area, where a lot of maybe you think ice, ice sheets are or something. But they would send these uh, enemies uh, to these, in groups to these islands that used to be, they would send them to these old monasteries on the islands. And they'd set up shop there. They tore, a lot, tore down a lot of the buildings, set up barracks and, and central administration buildings. And they would send all these political prisoners up there, you know, like think socialists, Mensheviks, anarchists, as well as some other criminals. One lecturer claimed that the entire Soviet system of forced labor as a method of re-education began there. Their thing, maybe re-education, changing the, the, the human nature. Say, oh, you're wrong, you know, get in line, right? And you send these people who are against you to these camps and with, with little say, right? And you send them to work with little food. And you say, oh, that'll, you know, that'll definitely make them see the wrongness of their ways and, you know, and uh, turn them to our vision of communism. But if you were a political prisoner, you had one thing going for you, which would change later. But at this time, if you were arrested for being, you know, counter-revolutionary uh, reasons, if you were a political prisoner, and it wasn't so bad... Uh, the administration would isolate you so you couldn't infect the other camp prisoners with your ideology, your hunger strikes, or your protests. So they would stick you together with other political prisoners. And they would actually give you special privileges. They would give you newspapers, books, freedom of movement within certain zones, uh, tea, sugar. You know, Depending on your ideology, you would also maybe form up with like-minded people and select your own little leader. So, you know, you were chilling out with all these like-minded people, and you really didn't do much work. It was, they sort of put you there because your ideology, they just couldn't have it in the normal society of the Soviet Union. They just needed to send you away before you could infect anybody. Lenore Ulitskaya, a political prisoner, describes her living conditions as, quote, light, clean, freshly washed, with two large open windows. The cell was full of light and air, there were, of course, no bars on the windows. In the middle of the cell stood a small table, covered in white cloth. Along the wall were four beds, neatly covered with sheets. Beside each one stood a small night table. On the tables lay books, notebooks, and pens." End quote. They also had access, access to a lot of other luxuries. And the camp system would evolve. Uh, the, the Solovitsky camp system would evolve so that there'd be entire magazines, newspapers, plays, and research studies, museums, and this would all be produced on the island. Uh, as Applebaum writes, quote, Solovetsky journals also contained more learned articles, ranging from Lukekova analysis to criminal gambling etiquette, to works on the art and architecture of Zolovetsky's ruined churches. Between 1926 and 1929, the Zolovetsky Printing House even managed to put out 29 editions of the work of the Zolovetsky Society for Local Lore. 
The Society conducted studies of the flora and fauna focusing on particular species, the northern deer, the local plants, and published articles on brick production, wind currents, useful minerals, and fur farming. So interested did some prisoners become the latter subject that in 1927, when the economic activity of the island was at its height, a group of them imported some silver black breeder foxes from Finland to improve their quality of the local herds. Among other things, the Society for Local Lore carried out geological surveys, which the director of the island's local history museum still uses today. End quote. So this was uh, an interesting place, no doubt, though, one of the very first camps, although not a really officially named the Gulag, just sort of the, the prototype, the blueprint that was going to be used. But you'll see it is very different. It'll evolve over time. And you'll see as the camp system progressed and more and more subcamps were placed around the Zolovetsky Islands, more criminals were sent there. These were not political. These were criminal. These could be anything consisting of white army officers, which were more, uh, which were, these like the czarists uh, against the Soviet Union army, uh, aristocrats, common criminals, and everything else that you can think of that would be against the Soviet government. So they would end up at Zolovetsky, but they had uh, no, they had it nowhere near as good as a lot of the political prisoners, and their conditions were much worse too. Prisoners were being sent faster than the, the administration, or more specifically, the prisoners could put up housing. Applebaum describes Dmitry Likakev who felt himself privileged because he didn't have to sleep in a trench that he dug with his bare hands. The administration also left a lot of the guards and the camp bosses up to their own devices. Some guards never gave the prisoners any breaks. Some prisoners who were working, cutting trees, would sometimes cut off their own hands just to get a break. And according to one account, uh, the guards kept these as their own trophies. Some guards would shout dolphin at prisoners while they were working on a bridge, and they would have to jump off into the river. Uh, other forms of sadism included something known as mosquito torture. If a guard got angry at someone, he would strip that person down so that they were butt naked and tie them to a post in the forest during the summer that was swarming with mosquitoes. Klinger, who escaped from the prison later, Writes, quotes, within half an hour, his whole unlucky body was covered with swelling from the bites. Klinger goes on to claim that the man later died from the pain and the loss of blood. Now, this is just the iceberg of the human experience that you'll get in these camps. Yeah, but it's, you know, you couldn't, you, there were many ways to die, you know, from disease to arbitrary killings, whether individual or mass, to malnutrition, really anything you could, could think of that would be just irrational or unpredictable but these camps would become very big economic costs for the soviet government they needed to start to become self-sufficient right pay for yourselves you have all this free slave labor how are you costing us money right and they wanted them to also become profitable and one big idea that was very sounds like common sense but it would become very foundational to the the system the camps would use in the future but it was the idea of the more you work the more food you get uh, this became right integral so weaker people older ladies or sickly they would be given less rations while the stronger would be given the most you know depending on how much how many trees you cut or how many you know canals you dug the more you get 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the writer of the Gulag Archipelago, writes about how a man, Frankel, who was once a prisoner himself, made, makes his way up the, the ladder and becomes a, makes the camps more efficient. He produces this rationality to them. And he did away with a lot of the society for local lore, the journalism, the newspapers, really anything that didn't contribute to the camp's productivity. And Stalin, I think he Stalin saw this as a way of the the camp becoming self-sufficient and profitable. Although it's been argued that they really never were, but they appeared to be so because of the methods that Frankel used. And that is why you'll see the Solovetsky camp act as the prototype or the template for the modern the modern day, but the 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 gulag that would come to evolve and evolve the systems, the thousands of little camps that sprang up across the Soviet Union. And because of this systemization, there were also less random acts of violence, less torture, but of course they still did occur, but just less arbitrarily. In 1929, with Lenin dead and Joseph Stalin in power, there are these plans for rapid industrialization. You've heard of the the five-year plan. This was Stalin's effort to catch up the Soviet Union with the West or, or the rest of the, the world because they were still somewhat backwards, still sort of feudal in a way. So this was a huge undertaking, whether you... You know, regardless of what you, you think of the Soviet Union, it's very impressive what they did in about five years, you know, but at what cost, sort of, you know. And they decide to establish a unified network of camps to replace the sort of poor prison system for the class enemies and the and the criminals. And this is a, a way to help them. They would, they would use these prisoners, these class enemies and criminals, as a way to help with the rapid industrialization, the five-year plan. And the secret police would uh, be in charge of a lot of these camps. So it becomes less about reform, less about changing these people to fit the communist uh, class consciousness ideology, sort of, and more about free slave labor, basically. So it's, we honestly really don't care about the reform too much anymore. But you'll still see, see there's still you know remnants of it throughout the Soviet system, some of the administration, like there's this cultural bureau that sort of tries to, still gives the, a lot of propaganda in the camps. That doesn't really stop. But it becomes less about the, the reform, more about the work. Although it's all, it is often a, a mix. So with this rapid industrialization came a lot of forced collectivization. The government, this means that the government forced millions of peasants off their land to join collective farms. Usually these peasants had tilled the land. They'd been on the land for, for I mean, generations. And this mass upheaval caused mass famines and it killed millions of people during the early 1930s. And, of course, there were those who resisted. These people were known as kulaks. If you, you could become a kulak if you owned an extra cow or you had a little bit of extra grain or maybe a jealous neighbor reported you. You were labeled as a kulak, and at one time, if you if you stole grain or something, you could be executed, and you were given a long sentence for crimes against state property. And these kulaks would be upended, forced on these farms, or sent to these labor camps if they really if they, they resisted in some way. Like I said, they would send the kulaks to different regions of the Soviet Union, 
usually places that had vast amounts of natural resources just waiting to be begotten. But they were often, these places were often too isolated or too cold or too dangerous for most people to survive. So they couldn't really get anybody to voluntarily go over there. They send the Kulaks and Applebaum says between 1930 and 1933, over 2 million peasant Kulaks were sent to Siberia, Kazakhstan, or other underpopulated areas of the Soviet Union. And around some 100,000 of them were sent to the Gulag camps. And there were so many people that were being arrested that the government had to create a system of economics and, and rational concentration camps for all these people. And you know, put them to, to good use, sort of that mindset. You start to see, right, like I said, no one's talking about the transformation of the human nature. It's all about industrializing free labor and, and things of that sort. And these huge camps were starting to spring up around the Soviet Union, especially where there was an economical incentive. One such camp was Kolyma, which was built over a huge coal deposit. There were many others, very famous camps. And coincidentally, the people that were being arrested and sent to these camps were mining experts, labor organization people, and, and some hydraulic engineers. So, you know, what a coincidence there. Uh, you know, it's probably certain with all these arrests, Stalin used them as a means to get rid of enemies, as we'll see, but also to re receive free slave labor. And uh, Kulima was not the only camp that was a famous camp that was sprung. There are many, many others, each dealing with different uh, re their resources. There'd be you know, gold, timber, you know, oil, or something of that sort. And these huge, uh, I mean, they would grow to be huge. And a lot of towns, as you'll see, today are, are, are left over from, from the camps that were, were, were built there. And there was also one huge project called the White Sea Canal. That was the major expansion of, of the camp system. Stalin, and Stalin took great pride in his accomplishment. Although there was constant food, food shortages, there, the prisoners used primitive tools. A lot of them were handmade, had to, had to dig the earth, handmade spades or something. And I think Stalin or the administration saw what could be done with all of this, and this was greatly added to the the other camp systems across the Soviet Union. For their, you know, they saw that we just built this great canal in a, in a pretty good amount of time. So why don't we just do that everywhere else? And so you know, you you were upended from your home if you were a peasant, whether arrested because a neighbor was jealous or because a relative was connected with a political movement. You were sent to some far-off place in the country that was usually inhospitable. One group of people who were described as a backward element were upended and exi exiled to an island called Nazino. And on their journey, it's described in a nightmarish tone. It's described as, quote, The first convoy contained 5,070 people, and the second 1,044, 6,114 in all. The transport conditions were appalling. The little food that was available was inedible, and the deportees were cramped into a nearly airtight space. The result was a daily mortality rate of 35 to 40 people. These living conditions, however, proved to be luxurious in comparison to what awaited the deportees on the island of Nizino. The island of Nizino is a totally inhabitable place, devoid of any settlements. There was no tools, no grain, no food. And this is how their new life began. The day after the arrival of the first convoy on May 19th, snow began to fall again, and the wind picked up. Starving, emaciated from the months of insufficient food, without shelter and without tools, they were trapped. 
They weren't even able to light a fire to ward off the cold. More and more of them began to die. On the first day, 295 people were buried. It was only on the fourth or fifth day after the convoy's arrival on the island that the authorities sent a bit of flour by boat, really no more than a few pounds per person. Once they had received their meager ration, people ran to the edge of the water and tried to mix some of the flour with water in their hats, their trousers, or their jackets. Most of them just tried to eat it straight off, and some of them even choked to death. These tiny amounts of flour were the only food that the deportees received during the entire period of their stay on the island. End quote. Applebaum goes on to say that after about three months of being there, 4,000 of the 6,114 deportees would end up dead, and the ones that were lucky enough to survive did so because of cannibalism. And when the authorities heard about it, they arrested them for it. But all in all, once the camps started to be set up across the country, some of them really thrived, like I said earlier. I mean, these were these grew to be like entire self-sufficient, uh, in a way, communities. You know, you had your, your hospitals, your cobblers, your housing, sometimes electricity. And, you know, they sprang up and uh, they took a place that was completely barren and, and really changed the land. And in 1934, the official name of the camp system was called the Gulag, which is, is an acronym. The Russians love their acronyms. I mean, don't we all? The Gulag is, is, is it's an acronym for the Chief Administration of Corrective Labor. The Russian is different and I will not try to pronounce it, but that's the English translation. And it just made it, it, it incorporated all of the the bureaucracy, the the sites, the labor camps, the prisons. This was all counted as the gulag. And the gulag will be expanded even more This with what's called the Great Terror or the Great Purge, which occurred between 1937 and 1938. Some authors point out that although this was terrible it was nothing special to what came before or after it just marks another time in the gulag's history which was particularly affected by it particularly affected the elite so that could be a reason it was maybe remembered more and this time when you th- in, during the great terror if you think that you know no one was safe before whether it's your mom your brother your sister your nephew your nephew your nieces or your pets well no now no one's really safe even if you were uh, in in the elite if you if you were part of the system Especially if you were a part of the system. And Stalin, if he saw you as a threat, which was apparently almost anybody, you were not going to maybe make it out too well. Some statistics say that about 750,000 people were executed during this two-year period, and millions more were sent to the labor camps. Yogata, who was one of the people responsible for the expansion of the Gulag system up to this point, was arrested by Stalin and sentenced to die. He sent a letter pleading for his life where he says, quote, it is hard to die. And this is said by a man who was responsible for the deaths of, of countless, countless others. The replacement of Yogata would go on to arrest his wife, his parents, his sisters, his nef- nephews, and his nieces. Another camp boss, this guy named Edward Burzen, who was is often looked back quite romantically by some of the prisoners in his camps. He, he did a lot of camps over in the, I think in Siberia, in the, in the eastern part of Russia. But he's often looked back on because he provided pretty decent living conditions for a lot of the prisoners. 
You know, he provided them, you know, maybe with with better food, better bathing, really anything. And, you know, most of the time in these camp systems, I think it's not really out of the goodness of their heart. I think it's probably because there is an economical incentive to give these prisoners better conditions because if you, you know, you give prisoners a break, you feed them properly, nutritiously, and you, you, you give them some free time. Well, they're probably, when it comes down to time to work, they're probably going to be more efficient and get more done if they're, you know, compared to if they're surviving on half a piece of bread and they're, they can't sleep and they're sick. Well, they're probably not going to do much of anything. I think Burson saw that and that was one of his main reasons why he was so loved. I don't know about loved, but some people look back on his time as much better compared to what they were getting. But he would be arrested during, he would be caught up during this time. And he takes the, he's ordered to take this train to Moscow. And apparently Applebaum says that he wasn't really aware of what was going on. He wasn't really aware of his own demise. He's quite ignorant to it. So he arrives in Moscow and he's arrested and he's, he's a prisoner now. And he's accused of this counter-revolutionary sabotage, wrecking activities. Soviets loved using that, the counter-revolutionary. He was also accused of creating the spy network in the camp region that he was governing. They said he was allegedly helping the Japanese government to help take over Russia. They take him to a basement and they shoot him in the head for his crimes. Another guy who actually got quite lucky. Not everyone had it so bad during this time, although most did. Applebaum writes of one such guy who actually came out on top. She says, quote, In 1935, when he was deputy deputy commander of the Mitleg, Barabinov was arrested along with a colleague for having arrived at the camp in a drunken state. As a result, he lost his job, received a light prison sentence, and was working at a distant camp in the far north in 1938 when the mass arrests of Yogada's henchmen took place. In the chaos, his existence was forgotten. By 1954, his love of alcohol was forgiven. He had risen through the ranks once again to become the deputy commander of the entire gulag system. End quote. So, yeah, maybe it's rare, but there's always a chance, right? So you're telling me there's a chance? Even though maybe still being a light sentence <laughs> counts, right? It's still pretty bad. But other people caught up in these arrests believe that the Soviet Union could never do that to them. Some went as far as to blame fascists within the party. And, you know, Stalin could never do this to us. Some even justified their arrest as a sacrifice for the greater cause. Their arrest had to happen for the Soviet Union to succeed in the first place. And once again, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I can never, I can never feel like I can do justice to all these events that took place in, this, in this, these decades. I keep reading, you know, countless accounts of this or that, or, you know, there are these mass shootings, or there this person arrested, or these people couldn't get enough food. Just countless pages uh, from you know, government accounts or personal accounts. And so it's hard to fit all this into any package because I'm leaving out too much. I don't want to drag this on anymore because I feel like I've been, you know, speaking for a little bit. This is still part two. And so this has been the the first camp systems and I apologize for any mispronunciations I'm not a native Russian speaker as you can tell I try my best though but I hope that this podcast this sort of int- this part two introduction to the camp system provided you with some maybe some sort of foundation 
uh, help you get a good idea of the experiences and the atmosphere and the environment. For part three, I think I'm going to get into the personal experiences, not just of the prisoners, but also of the guards and the camp bosses to really try to cover all aspects of the camp. You know, because to me, that's what brings all this life to it. You know, it's already pretty bad reading from these accounts of you know what people had to go through, but I really think it brings the, the personal experiences bring to life these black and white pictures. Because to me, these are just I'm reading about it, and I really it's hard to put yourself there, especially for, for me. I haven't experienced anything quite like that. So thank you for listening to part two. If you enjoyed, please share this podcast with a friend, and follow and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I hope uh, you have a good rest of your day or night. Goodbye.